following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you're getting settled, go ahead and grab your Bibles or grab one of the Bibles from one of the tray tables back there and you can make your way to the Old Testament book of Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 2 this morning. If you thought I was teasing last week when I said we were going to go through Ezra, you were wrong. We're going to make our way through the book of Ezra. And as you're making your way there, I'll tell you, I was reminded this week um, in preparing for this morning um, that there are some people that God has just given the ability, he's just made them a unique way that they can make anything sound good and interesting. I know you guys don't watch Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel or any of that kind of stuff. But if you have seen it before, you, you might have seen where they'll have segments on their show where they'll bring celebrities on or even President Obama, they'll come on and they will read mean tweets that people have tweeted about them. And there are some people that can just make it sound good. I mean, when President Obama reads mean tweets about himself that people have made, it sounds good. When Anthony Hopkins is reading these things, it just sounds good. It doesn't even sound mean anymore. There's just a way that they can do it that it just sounds like, well, that was really interesting. Huh? And then you think, well, no, wait a that was mean. You know, there are some people that can just make anything sound good. And I have never, ever, ever been accused of having that ability. And so we are going to need to rely even more so this morning on God to do what God said and promised he will do with his word because if you've looked ahead at Ezra chapter 2, you might have noticed that Ezra chapter 2 is 70 verses of names, places, and numbers. That's all it is. Names, places, and numbers. But God said that all of his word, not part of it, but all of it, was profitable for our encouragement, for our training, our building up into righteousness and maturity. So we are going to have to trust him uniquely this morning to do that very thing in his word because if you're really honest and you've ever really gone to Ezra before and you've made it that far in your annual reading plan, you go from the end of Ezra chapter one to the beginning of Ezra chapter three because Ezra chapter two is just lists. And it's hard sometimes to figure out what in the world is that there for. So this morning, we are going to trust God to help us see in Ezra chapter 2 what he has there for our encouragement, for our training and growing into maturity and righteousness. So if you found it, Ezra chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1 this morning. I, I wanted to read the whole thing at different points along the way. But some of these names get so difficult and I have to stop to breathe and actually swallow spit that accumulates in my mouth that it takes longer than we have. So I'll read pieces. I'll point out the rest and I'll read pieces, but you should try it sometime this week. It's a good vocal exercise. Ezra chapter two, verse one. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. And now, prepare yourself from the second part of Ezra chapter 2, verse 2, all the way through for 63 verses, we are going to have one big list. Now that one big list we're going to break up into seven distinct sections. And again, while it might not make for the most edge of your seat reading, God has promised that it's profitable for us. So this morning, let's explore how that may even be possible. Ezra chapter 2, starting in the second half of verse 2, you're going to go all the way down to verse 21. And from 2 through 20, you are going to see a list of people that are returning back to Jerusalem from captivity and they're going to be gathered together by family genealogy. This is who they're from. This is how they're being identified. You can see it if you read a little bit. The number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Sheptiah, 372. 
the sons of Arah, 775. And you can see it carries on all the way down through into verse 20, where it ends with the son of Jorah, 112, the sons of Hashum, 223, the sons of Gebar, 95. That's the first section. Who were they from? From whom did they come? Now the second group, it's going to shift. And they're going to be listed based upon the area of Jerusalem that their families had come from. What part of the promised land had God given to their clan? So where were they from? So that on their way back now to the promised land, this is the place that they'll return to. This is their hometown. So now it's whom are you from and from where do you come? That's how it's being grouped. So in verse 21, you can see it start there. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anatoth, 128. And it goes all the way down through verse 35 where it ends with the sons of Sinah, 3,630. So, while on the surface, the first 35 verses of Ezra chapter 2 might not look like the most naturally encouraging portion of Scripture, I don't know if anyone else has ever opened up Ezra chapter 2 first thing in the morning to be encouraged to be equipped in maturity and righteousness, but we have to do this morning what I've had to do for myself even in studying, and that's not judge this book by its cover. We've got to open it up and to look and to see what has God put in here for our encouragement and our training. The first thing that we see, even in the first 35 verses, is what I've said we were going to see throughout the entire book of Ezra. If you open it up and you look God puts on display his continued faithfulness, his continued commitment to his promise and to his people. Over and over and over again in the book of Ezra, this is what we are going to see. God remains faithful to himself, to his promise, and that means to his people. Let me try to show you where you see it in these first 35 verses that you might be encouraged again by the faithfulness of God. If you look in verse 2 of chapter 2, Verse 2 is made up of 11 names, okay? 11 leaders, so to speak, that are leading all these people back to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. Now, if you take those 11 names and you go back over to chapter 1 and you look in verse 2 of chapter 1, you'll find that there was someone else listed, but he was listed in chapter 1, not chapter 2. And in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, All of these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So now 11 plus 1 equals what? I could do that math. 12. 12 leaders that represent the 12 distinct tribes of Israel, of the people that God had called his own. And we're reminded off the bat in the first 35 verses that the names that we read coming from the places and the peoples that we see in these verses are the real descendants of God's original promise to Abram. That he would be theirs and they would be his. What you've got to catch here in the first 35 verses is that God is not starting over. God has remained faithful even in his people's continued unfaithfulness and ingratitude to him, even though they rebelled, even though they were judged in captivity, even though right now in this picture, they're not what they were and they're not what they're going to be, God has remained faithful. Faithful to himself, faithful to his word, and faithful to his people. So one writer in trying to make sense of Ezra chapter 2, he said that you and I need to read it and imagine every footstep on the thousand-mile journey back resonating with a conviction that God does not forget his promises and his people. And if you dig around a little bit in the list, in the first 35 verses, you'll find that even for some of these people, for some people when they get back to the land that they had left, back to the land that their family came from, there are going to be very specific reminders of God's faithfulness to his word and to his people waiting for them when they get there. It's a great story. If you look in verse 23, you read about the men of Anatoth, 128 of them that are going to be headed back to Jerusalem. Why does that matter at all? Are you familiar with that name? Old Testament scholars in here? If you go and take some time this week, I won't spend too much time this morning because we'll get us off track, but if you go and take some time this week, read Jeremiah chapter 32. 
In Jeremiah chapter 32, here's what was happening. Jerusalem was being besieged by Babylon. This was in the early stages of Babylon, taking Jerusalem, the Jerusalem captive, destroying the temple. They had besieged Jerusalem, which means they had taken control of it and they were starving the people out of it. And during that time, God had raised up a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was prophesying to God's people in the midst of this. And in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, what you'll find is that Jeremiah was being held captive by the king. The king did not like Jeremiah prophesying in the name of the Lord, I'm going to give my people over to captivity because of their sin. And guess what? He named the king by name and said, you're going to go too. So the king got mad and he put Jeremiah in captivity, so to speak, in his court while Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And you'll find in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, it says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and it told him while Jerusalem was being besieged by Babylon to buy land from his cousin. Your uncle owns land. Your cousin's going to come to you. Buy the land. Redeem the land. And when you buy the land, here's what I want you to do. Roll the deeds up, put them in jars that will last a long time, and they'll bury them in the land. So Jeremiah is in captivity in the court of the king because he's prophesying captivity for God's people. And his cousin shows up, just like God had told him. And Jeremiah says in chapter 32, I knew this must have been of the Lord. So Jeremiah takes the money, he redeems the land that his family had owned, he buys it, he does what God says, he puts the deeds in an earthenware jar, they go back to the land in Anatoth, and they bury it. And then you find in Jeremiah 32, I'll read this to you, because it's so good, you can go read it for yourself at some point this week. They bury it in the land of Anatoth. Jeremiah 32 says, thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all of this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you're saying it's a desolation. Without man or beast, it's given into the hand of the Babylonians. Fields shall be bought for money. Deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of the Negeb. I will restore the fortunes of my people, says the Lord. So after 70 years in captivity, 128 men of Anatoth make their way back convinced that God has remained faithful to his people and to his promise. And when they get back to Anatoth, what do they find waiting for them? But the deeds of the land that God had told his prophet to buy, promising them that a day was going to return, even though they were in captivity, when God would have them on that land again, with fields, with vineyards, with blessing, because he remained faithful to them, even when they were faithless to him. Friends, it's a portrait of God's eternal, continual faithfulness to his people. But Ezra chapter 2 reminds us of something else about God's faithfulness. Last week, we talked about how God's faithfulness isn't just this abstract idea that we need to assent to. I mean, we know it's an aspect of his character. We know it's true about who he is, but sometimes it's hard to put legs on that thing. So last week, we talked about how God's faithfulness to his promise and to his people was very active. And we saw how it was God that was stirring the hearts of the king. It was God who was stirring the hearts of his people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. His faithfulness is active in our hearts and in our lives. Well, in Ezra chapter 2, we see not only is his faithfulness active, but his faithfulness to his word and to his people is intensely personal and intensely intimate. See, when you take time this week to to read Ezra chapter 2, I want you to slow down as you're going through these first 35 verses and realize these are real names. These are real people. These are real hometowns. It's not some cold recounting of details that people had to keep a record of to know what was going on and what was happening. These were the names of people that God knew before they were ever in their mother's womb. And he had committed himself to them. These are the names of God's people. I mean, just take a moment, and it's a dangerous thing to say, but take a moment this week and just consider, if you were him, if you were him, how quickly would you have just started over with someone else? I mean, how quickly would you have just said, okay, I'm done with this group. I mean, I'm at my wit's end Generation after generation after generation of rebellion and disregard and grumbling and looking for satisfaction and joy somewhere else. Forget, I can do better with this people. How quickly would you have turned towards some other group to start with? 
God has remained faithful very personally to a people that he has committed himself to. So as that one writer said, when you read Ezra chapter two and you go through those first 35 verses, you should hear their footsteps as footsteps of conviction, knowing that God remains faithful. Now you need to hear them as footsteps of grace. Not just conviction that God is who he is, but the reality again of how gracious and expansive God's grace is to his people. Friends, nothing has changed in God's personal faithfulness then to now. God still knows his people by name. I mean, when was the last time you allowed your heart at all to consider God's continued faithfulness very personally to you? I mean, I get so caught sometimes thinking about these things in these huge abstract categories. Yes, he's faithful. That's part of who he is. Here's what that means. This is why I should rely upon the sheer integrity of God's faithfulness to his word in all circumstances and situations. But when was the last time you just sat and allowed your heart to dwell on God's continued, very personal faithfulness to you? He's no different in his faithfulness to his people now than he was then. In fact, even as you make your way through the rest of the story, even into the New Testament over and over and over again, you see Jesus Christ loving to deal with people very personally, very directly, even by name. Zacchaeus, come down. Lazarus, come out. Simon, don't you love me more than all of these? You see the continued faithfulness of God to his people in the person and work of his son in the way he speaks to them in the way he touches them in the way he engages with them. So when you get to the point where he gives his life up for our sin on the cross, you need to realize that he did not die on the cross for some nameless, faceless group of people. He actually said, I've given my life over for all of those the Father has given me. And he said, those the Father has given me know my voice, and I know them all by name. It's never changed. When was the last time you allowed your heart at all to dwell upon the fact that he gave himself up for you? For you. That he loves you. Ezra chapter 2, lists of names and places and numbers and stuff. Again, it reminds us of God's eternal and personal faithfulness to his promise and to his people. You see, they're going back to Jerusalem, back to their homes, back to their land, not because they finally figured out somehow in captivity to be obedient to God, not because they figured out that somehow because of their sin, they were in some sort of debt with God and they figured out how to pay back the debt that they owed to God in some sufficient way that they could now go back to their home. It's not like they figured something like that out and now they deserve to go back. No, they're going back home because of God's continued eternal faithfulness. His personal active faithfulness to his promise and his people. Friends, as you consider Ezra chapter 2 at some point this week, and if you are indeed a, a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe Ezra chapter 2 will remind you anew that you've tasted of God's grace not because you figured out how to do something someone else didn't. It's not because you finally figured out how to live a particular way. No, it's because of the eternal, gracious faithfulness of God to you. He sent his son to live the life that you were created to live. He sent his son to die the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sin. He raised his son from the grave, accepting his sacrifice as complete and sufficient. He sent his spirit to stir your heart that you might hear the good news of salvation and forgiveness in his son and respond to it. 
It's his continued, personal, active faithfulness to us that should be astounding in this. These are his people that he knows by name, that he's committed himself to, and his faithfulness to will endure forever. Friends, even even when we're not faithful, we're reminded that he remains faithful. And it's his faithfulness that saves us. It's his faithfulness that keeps us. It's his faithfulness that will never forsake us. So lists like this in Ezra chapter two, if we're not careful, they can seem very cold. They can be very impersonal. They can be one of those things we just think, how fast can we skip through it until we slow down and realize that in all these names, in all these places, we're being reminded of a faithful God who knows and loves and has committed himself to his people. And that's just the first 35 verses. What time is it? All right. I don't have my clock. All right. There's more. There's more. There's four more groups. The next four groups, we're going to combine them together. All right. So if we saw in the first 35 verses, the faithfulness of God to his promise and to his people, in particular, his personal faithfulness. Now, what should the response to that kind of faithfulness be? What does it look like? Does it really even matter? Well, we get a glimpse of some of that in the next few lists. Watch this. In verse 36, we get another group in this big list. These are the priests. The priests, the sons of Jediah, the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emmer, 1,052, the sons of Pashur, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017. Now, stop right there. If you get to the end of chapter two, and we'll get there in just a minute, you'll find that there were some 42,000, what is it? I think 300, 42,360 total registered people returning from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So if you add up the numbers there listed for the priests, what you find is that 10% of the entire returnees were priests. One in 10 of all the people who came out of Babylon back to Jerusalem were priests. If you slow down, it makes a little bit of sense. I mean, God had called the priests to a particular service to him and to his people. It was the priests that in some sense mediated between the presence of God and the sinfulness of the people. It was the priests that took the animals that were given over and offered them as sacrifices on behalf of the people's sins. It was priests that played that role. Well, guess what happens in captivity? You can't do that. The temple's been destroyed. The altar's been destroyed. The Holy of Holies is gone. The priests are over here in Babylon. But the word has come from God. We're going back to Jerusalem. We're going to restore the temple that God might be worshipped rightly. The priests are ready to go. So 10% of all the returnees, priests. But even in that, if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament history, you know that in the time of David, David took the priestly class and broke it into 24 subgroups. Well, in this list, only four of the 24 are represented. So while priests made up 10% of everybody that comes back, only four out of 24 groups actually had representation. Some didn't want to go back, and we'll get there later. That's the third group. The fourth group right under that is very connected to the priest group. This is the Levites. Verse 40, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hadoviah, 74. The Levites were assigned to help the priests with their duties. Now what you find if you do the math right here is that there's one Levite per 58 priests returning. Only 74 made the trip back. A lot of reasons why that might be, but we'll save it for another time. Along with them come the singers, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adar, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hattiah, and the sons of Shobai. All in all, 139. And then the next group, the fifth group, these are the temple servants. These would have been people that assisted the Levites in assisting the priests to do all the work that it took to offer the sacrifices on behalf of God's people. It took a lot of people for this to actually happen. So now you've got these temple servants and and we won't read all the way through. It's from verse 43 to verse 55, but I'll tell you this. Any of you guys that are still in the market for unique baby names, and I know a lot of you young folk are into that, This is the list you need to go to. I promise you, no one has taken these. There's even hyphenated names. So if you're into hyphenated names, you got them right there. I don't know any back books. I don't know any of those. You can take that one right there and go to the Bible for it. It's right there, temple servant. 
but these would have assisted the Levites. We've got a whole list of them. And then you've got the sixth group, down in verse 55. These are the sons of Solomon's servants. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai and Haspareth, the sons of Peruda. These are assistants to the temple servants who assisted the Levites, who assisted the priests. All in all, you can see there at the end, temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. So 392 people that would have naturally assisted the Levites, there were only 74 of them, who would have naturally assisted the priests who outnumbered the Levites by two to one, a lot of people to do a lot of work. Why does it matter? I mean, why does all of that even matter? I was asking myself this this week as I was trying to read through it and make sense of it. Why not just include them in the people they came from or the place they came from? I mean, why break it out by their role? Why, why do this? Well, ultimately, you have to remember why it was God was sending them back to Jerusalem in the first place. God was sending them back in his faithfulness that they might restore the temple, that he might be worshiped rightly. God had stirred the heart of these 42,000 plus to be passionate about him being adored and worshiped for who he is. And come what may and whatever sacrifice it might cost them to make the thousand mile journey back to Jerusalem to a place that had been destroyed, they felt like he was worth it. This is what they were created for. This is what the heart longs for. This is what the heart is ultimately satisfied. And we're reminded even in Ezra chapter two that it takes the stirring of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts for the passion for our lives to be a living sacrifice of adoration to him to actually come out aright. But this is why they're going back and so it matters. But even more specifically, why again break it up by role? Why not just put them with the genealogies? Why not just put it in the hometowns? Why do the roles matter? It matters because God had established these particular roles, these particular offices who would offer these particular sacrifices and these particular ceremonies to consistently remind his people of their need for his forgiveness and his atonement of their continued sinfulness and of his continued faithfulness because those things had always been and continue to be pointers towards the day when God would finally and sufficiently send the one true perfect priest who would offer the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin altogether in his son. All of these roles mattered that he might be worshiped rightly by his people because one day, one day, he was going to send his son. And his son would be the perfect high priest. His son would offer the perfect sacrifice so that now on this side of the cross for you and I and anyone who by the grace of God, their heart has been stirred, they've seen his glory in his son, they've repented of their sins and are now counted in Christ. For everyone on this side of the cross who's counted in Christ, Peter says you and I are now part of a royal priesthood. You know what that means? Because of why these roles mattered and what they were pointing to? It means back then when we read these lists, it took these priests and these Levites and these workers to do the mediating work between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. Someone had to go between them because in our sin, we couldn't enter the presence of God. But now those things pointed to Jesus as the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice so that you and I in him no longer need anyone else or any other sacrifice to enter into the presence of God. In him, we now have direct access to the presence of God. And now we no longer need the sacrifice of an animal for our sins, but we as part of that royal priesthood that can enter in Christ into God's presence, offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. That's what it actually means. That's who we are. God in his grace through his son has called his people particularly and personally into this beautiful relational role. I love how one writer, trying to sum up what you see happening, even in Ezra 2, going through even the list of the roles in worship in the temple, he said the Holy Spirit makes the church a cauldron of spontaneously generated spiritual life and ministry. That's what you see happening in Ezra 1 and 2. 
It's God who's stirring the heart. It's God who's sending his people. It's God who's bringing them back. It's God who's giving them the passion to see him worshiped rightly. It's God who's restoring all this. There's this continual work of the Holy Spirit making his people together now as the church, this cauldron of activity. But at the same time, you're reminded that as he's doing that work, and gifting his people so that in his church and through his church, these different offerings of sacrifices through our life can be made, there's still a structured, ordered reality to it. There's a dynamic balance of the Spirit's work, and that's what makes the church in human terms sustainable. He's at work stirring, motivating, driving for his glory and our good, and at the same time, he's providing structure. He's providing accountability and providing authority. This is what we begin to see again, even as you go through lists like Ezra chapter two. But there was something else that I learned this week. A pastor in London named Gerald Bilks. He said, when reading Ezra chapter two, you need to capture the picture that this is a nation of returning prodigals. It's a great picture, isn't it? It's a nation of returning prodigals dedicated to and participating in the building up of God's temple. And each was involved in some way. So you've got that middle section where you've got the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants. And you see what part they play in the worship of God and what part they play in the temple. But when you pull the scope out, you see that everyone who came back wanted to be a part of seeing the temple restored and God worshiped rightly. And you get a picture of this desire in the rest of the list. Starting in verse 59, you get the group of what I call the disorganized. There's always a disorganized aspect to the church. It's never fully and completely efficient. But in verse 59, you get this last seventh group in this long list. And these were all people who came back with the returnees, but did not have the right paperwork to prove that they were from the town they were trying to go back to, or that they were part of the priesthood that they claimed to be descended from. They lost the paperwork somewhere. Somewhere along the line, the genealogy wasn't there. And because the worship of God and the right worship of God was so sufficient to reflect his holiness and our need for his forgiveness, because all of that mattered, God's people didn't cast them aside. But they couldn't naturally immediately let them have the land they said was theirs or serve in the temple the way they said they were supposed to. They waited on the direction of the Lord regarding each and every single one of those cases. It mattered. And then if you look down in verse 68, you see how even the people listed in the first 35 verses, by family or by home, participated in what was happening in the beginning. Look at verse 68. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, they made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. So not just the priests, not just the Levites, not just the servants. Everyone who came back wanted to be a part of seeing the worship of God rightly restored. And so when they get back to Jerusalem, the first thing they do is they go to the temple ruins. The temple doesn't exist, remember? Taken down, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They go back to the temple ruins and the first thing they do is offer a free will offering to the Lord according to their ability to see it restored. This is the same phrase that Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he gives instruction to the people of God now that we should set aside every week according to our ability an offering to the Lord that we might present when we gather together. These people were returning to Jerusalem with a heart and a passion for the clear adoration of the God of grace who had protected them and remained faithful to them. And they were overjoyed when they returned to make whatever sacrifice was necessary to see him worshiped rightly. And the same thing's true of us. It's no different now than it was then. It takes an ongoing adoration for the God of grace to stir us to the place of sacrifice with our lives and with our resources. Everyone wanted to be a part. Everyone wanted to see God worshipped the way he rightly deserved to be worshipped. That list of priests and Levites and servants, it matters because the worship of God matters. But I don't want you to miss this. It's not just that the worship of God matters, but I want you to notice even in the list, in chapter two, I want you to notice the grace of the God that we actually worship. 
Look at verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and their female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Let me ask you a question to make sure you're still with me because I know it's lists and numbers. Where were they before they came back to Jerusalem? Babylon. Why were they in Babylon? It was an act of God's judgment on their sin. It was because of their sin they found themselves captive in Babylon for 70 plus years. Now they're going home. Guess who has horses? Wealthy people. Guess who has camels? Wealthy people. Even in these verses, we're reminded that in their unfaithfulness and the judgment of God that placed them in captivity in Babylon, God had remained faithful to them. Not only protecting them, but as he told them, don't think you're going to leave in two weeks. Don't think you're going to leave in two months. Remember in Jeremiah, you need to settle in. You need to plant vineyards. You need to build houses. For in the well-being and welfare of this place, so will be yours. God had continued to be faithful to his people, even in their unfaithfulness and in their captivity. And now as God stirs their heart back into the place that he had promised them, what you see is a very broad socioeconomic church with people, and we'll see it in just a second, from various lands and places and tribes and tongues. And they've all come together with a passion to see the one true God rightly worshipped. Lest you think this is all Pollyanna and sunshine and roses, i got to be very honest. There are some things in Ezra chapter 2 that you and I can, and I shouldn't say, but can take heart in because there are some struggles that were common to them even in this that are common to us. Look at verse 68 where it says, some of the heads of the families when they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem made free will offerings to the house of God. What's that first word in verse 68? Some, not all. So as they came back, having been richly provided for, protected in God's faithfulness and grace, even in their unfaithfulness to him, and they find themselves back here to see the temple rebuilt, to see God rightly worshiped, there are some whom God has blessed while they were away in captivity that looked at how he's blessed them and what they're bringing back, and they're like, ah, I don't know. If, if I offer this up, are you gonna give it back? I mean, I have to play armchair psychologist to get after the heart and why they're doing it. But what you can see is that amongst God's people, there's still, and it's, it's not new. It's been around forever. There's still this, this tension between understanding how he has blessed us and how he's provided for us and how what we have, including the breath we have, is actually from him. So when we hear him stirring our hearts and calling us to something that might cost us, it's like, ah, I don't know. And our grip on the things of this world gets tight. And so you have some heads of families coming back, going, uh, let's see how it plays out. I'm not quite ready to let that go. I mean, take heart. That tension in your heart, it's not new. It's been around forever. But that's not the only way we see this playing itself out in this story. It's not just that some people tend to grip with their heart too tightly onto the things that God has blessed them with. So when the opportunity to return that which he has blessed us with to him as an offering is like, ah, I don't know. The other way we tend, to, we tend to act towards the way God has been faithful to us is we look. How has God been faithful in taking care of and blessing someone else? How can I get myself some of that? Like, how do I get over here what he's given them? And we figure out ways to kind of manipulate the understanding of who God is and his faithfulness to get what we want, whatever means we think we need to do to get it, right? We could do a whole other sermon on prosperity things in these days. But watch this story. It's a great story. I'm not making this up, I promise. Ezra chapter two, look at verse 61. You find in there the name and the story. Why is this here? Why is this in, in, in a list? It says the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. All right, so bring you back. Who's the Old Testament scholar in here who's heard the name Barzillai? 
Anybody? Barzillai? No takers. Barzillai features in the story of David, okay? So 2 Samuel chapter 17 and 19. You may remember there was a time in David's life when he had to flee from his own son. Absalom was after him to take his throne and to kill him. So David and his men had to flee to get away from his own son. And what you'll find in 2 Samuel 17 and 19 is that when David and his men were on the run from Absalom, this man in Gilead named Barzillai gave refuge to David's men. He fed them, he protected them, he gave them a place to stay. And before David died, one of the things he said on his deathbed in the last days was Barzillai and his descendants are to be favored from this day forward. The king said they're to be honored and favored for the way that they took care of myself and my men as we tried to flee Absalom. So now by edict of the king, Barzillai becomes a favored and honored man and his name and his family become favored and honored because of David. And through the genealogy and through the centuries, they get fairly wealthy because of that blessing that David had given them. So what you find in Ezra chapter two is that there were some men who were born in the priestly tribe, priestly clan. They had a right by genealogy to serve as priests. Well, they look over here and they see this favored family of, of Barzillai with land, with property, with resources. And rather than serving God the way that he had called them to serve them and trusted God to care for them the way that he had promised to care for the priests, they said, I want some of that. So these men go and marry Barzillai's daughters and they do something absolutely unheard of in that day. What did they do? Did you catch it? They took his name. They took the name of the daughter's father. Why? They wanted his stuff. They wanted the land. They wanted the resources. They wanted the way that God had proven himself faithful to care for Barzillai as he had cared for God's king. They wanted it for themselves. They didn't want to trust God to take care of them the way that God had promised to take care of them as priests. They wanted that stuff. So they found a way to try to get from God what he had given to someone else rather than trusting God to care for him the way they promised. So now when they go back to the homeland, they can't actually prove where they're from and what they do. Now their greed has gotten them stuck because they don't have the papers anymore to prove that they come from the priestly clan because they're carrying the name of Barzillai, who's not from a priestly clan. So they don't have a name, they don't have a land, and they don't have a job because they tried to manipulate God. And as we read, even in Ezra chapter two, lists, names, numbers, we're reminded of the continued faithfulness of God to his people. He takes care of his people you and I have to let him do it his way. You and I have to let him take care of us his way. And when we allow our hearts to grab too tightly onto the things of this world, when we find ourselves trying to get an end around something for God to indirectly bless us, to give us something that maybe he has blessed someone else, when we find ourselves trying to figure out how to get God to care for us the way we want, rather than trusting him to care for us as he's promised, it's not new. It's always been an issue of the heart. But the grace of the God we worship, they were still gathered amongst God's people, counted amongst his people, a part of the process of seeing his people established, restored, and his worship renewed. And I want you to see this. See this of his grace one more time. Don't want to end on Barzillai. Watch this. Verse 55. I could not find a scholar, regardless of what theological camp they find themselves in, I could not find a scholar who disagreed about this. Verse 55, the list of the sons of Solomon's servants Everyone agreed that at least 50% of all the names in that list belonged originally to people who had been enslaved by Israel and brought into Israel during the expansion of the kingdom under Solomon. So as Solomon expanded the kingdom and Israel went into its golden age and they conquered land and took land, they brought people from those lands into Israel as slaves. But while they were in the presence of God's people, while they were around the worship of God in the temple, while they were there in the presence of those whose hearts poured out in trust and faith and hope to the one true God, God stirred their heart. And now, 
They want to be back in Jerusalem to see the worship of God established and restored. Now, their names are counted amongst the names of God's people. Friends, this is a snapshot into the expansiveness of God's grace. Remember last week, we looked really quickly at Revelation 7 and that picture of the place that God is taking us to and we had to consider whether or not we actually believe that God's salvation and God's grace is as expansive as he says it is. This is a picture of it. Those people from Gentile lands who had found themselves in and amongst the people of God, present and around the worship of the one true God, God has stirred their heart and he has added them by name to his people. That's the grace of the God that we worship. So this week, as you go, and I'm sure you're going to now, you're going to go and you're going to read Ezra chapter 2. And I want to encourage you, as you go and you read Ezra chapter 2, I want you to read it through without trying to pick it apart like we did this morning. I want you to try to read it and capture from the big picture. I want you to try to see a portrait of the type of church that God is establishing amongst his people there. I think if you slow down and try to look at it from, the, from a 50,000 foot view, what you'll find is a portrait of a very courageous church, a portrait of a people who are passionate to worship God and honor and adore his faithfulness. I say that because if you go and you read it, you'll realize that when 42,300 plus come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, you have to realize that that was a very small percentage of the total number of people that went into captivity. There are more people still in Babylon than that came back to Jerusalem. As they had built houses and planted vineyards, life had grown very comfortable for the majority of the Israelites who found themselves in Babylon, especially under King Cyrus, who part of his political process was establishing neutrality amongst the religions and a peaceful environment amongst people of different religions. That made it easier to govern them so life had gone well for them. And so when the edict comes by the stirring of God for his people to go back to Jerusalem to establish the temple, it's a thousand miles back to a place that's been destroyed. It doesn't even exist physically anymore. And God's people are looking around at their houses and their vineyards like, I know I'm in captivity. I know this isn't the promised land. I know I came from there, but it's not half bad right now. I think I'm just going to stay here. But 42,000 stirred in heart by the Spirit of God, sight unseen, make the journey back. And I was reminded just how clear of a picture this is of a courageous church that's passionate to see God worshiped. Because whenever God stirs your heart to hear his word that you might respond to him, it's going to take courage. Because to respond to him in whatever way he's stirring you, in whatever direction he's taking you, it means you're going to have to leave something else. Every single time. You're going to have to leave something to follow him wherever he's taking you. The majority of his people in Babylon weren't willing to do that. But some 42,000 plus did. And they said goodbye to friends, to family. And they went back to a place that Probably for many of them, they've never even seen before. They probably were born in captivity. And they were going back because of the God they worshiped. Because as the writer of Hebrews 11 says, God has provided something better for us. And so as you read Ezra chapter two this week, and I would encourage you to read it. Don't let it just be as one writer said, dates and names of dead people. It's a picture of God's very personal, continued faithfulness to his promise and to his people. And I want you to have the courage to ask, God, are you stirring my heart towards something? For some of you, it might be that he's stirring your heart to repent of your sins and surrender the totality of who you are to him. For some, it might be the stirring of your heart towards something like being involved with the Youth Life Center that you heard about. It's going to take time out of your week. It's going to take emotional energy. It's going to take mental energy. 
It's going to take courage to trust him that he'll be faithful to you as you move forward in it. Maybe he's stirring you towards a new area of profession, a new area of work, that you might go into a place and bear witness to his faithfulness amongst people who have never known, never heard. Maybe he's stirring your heart to go to a different part of the city where you might be a faithful presence of his grace amongst people who have never known his faithfulness. Have the courage to ask him and then take heart. God has always, always, always been the God of active, personal, eternal faithfulness to his promise, to his people, and to his word for his glory and your joy. It's no different now than it ever has been. So this morning, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to respond to God. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to ask you to consider what you've heard from God's word this morning and allow him to deal with your heart and for you to deal with him. And then as God's people, of those who have tasted of his faithfulness and grace through the sacrifice of his son, we are going to remember that faithfulness and that sacrifice as we receive communion together. Then we're going to sing together and be sent out from here as his people in this place. So let me pray and then we're going to respond together. Father, we thank you that uh, even in Ezra chapter two, as you said, your, your word is sufficient for our encouragement, for our establishment, for our training in righteousness and maturity. God, we, we ask that you by your Holy Spirit would do the miracle that only you can do and you would take a chapter like Ezra 2 that on the surface seems like names and numbers and places and we can't figure out what it's for and you would use it to help us be reminded of your ongoing faithfulness to yourself and to your people that we would be of strong heart, of steady soul, a people of courage that are able by your grace and your spirit to hear your word and to follow. But we ask that you would do that this morning in our hearts in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.